Uh, this section is about divisions in the church. In fact, they'll be dealing with a lot of that, especially in the first four chapters, and that's what we're dealing with uh, today as well. But what we saw, something that we need to make sure we remember, is that having differences is not the same as having divisions. And Paul talked about divisions. Divisions are believed or acted in ways that divide God's people for sinful or petty reasons, for petty reasons to be sinful as well if it's used to divide people. But as we're going to deal with today, that doesn't mean that we have to always be on the same page about every little thing. You know, that Christ leads us and we grow at different rates. Our understanding uh, is at different levels sometimes. So it's okay to have differences, and yet we still can be united in Christ. And then we also saw in chapter 11, and we'll get to, of course, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, the Lord sometimes allows divisions to expose false professors. These divisions in the church, because they are a result of sinful behavior or thinking in some way, when people do not react well to division, that usually shows that they were not Christ and they leave. Uh, often that is exposed to getting the Lord is weeding out things to the people in the church that are not good for us. That sometimes is the case. Start to promote the fundamental doctrines, the gospel doctrines, and be united around them and be willing to give each other Christian liberty on non-essential. And so we must be careful. Another thing that we dealt with, because this can lead to division, we must be careful of following preachers and personalities to the point that they define Christianity for you, to the point that you cannot allow for differences or submit to your local church because you have become so enthralled with a great preacher or personality that they have defined Christianity for you. And so if your pastor or your church doesn't follow it, just like, you know, if I have, if I'm not a clone of your favorite preacher, well, I can't go to your church. And I've seen these things, you know, you might wonder, I'm going to deal with a lot of this today again. Think, well, why are you kind of emphasizing these things? Because I've seen, in my years, I've been in several churches, not, not just pastoring churches, I've seen the damage done when we don't really see, you know, what Paul is saying, you know, people, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus, Paul, and so forth. Another thing we, we dealt with last week was that we got to be careful of saying that I am a biblicist, and that that's enough. I... We are biblicists, obviously. You know, we do believe the Bible, and we—that—that—that's the first rule of faith that defines what we believe, no doubt. But that does not mean that you don't have to take a stand on certain biblical doctrines. Sometimes you have to identify yourself as whatever you are, and it doesn't keep the peace uh, to let everything be okay, every doctrine be okay. That is ecumenicalism, which throws out anything that there's disagreement on and ends up emphasizing nothing. And some of the great doctrines, well, I'll give you an example. I have an uncle who, I have both my uncles on my mother's side have preached ever since they got out of college. <laughs> now, I personally don't consider them to be preachers. They're, they're fundamentalists in, in, in ways that, you know, I, I mean, not that they haven't been used to the Lord to some degree, but I, I have real differences. But my one uncle says, uh, Calvinism, all Calvinism does is divide churches. Well, first of all, that's neither here nor there. What does the Bible teach, right? 
But, you know, Arminianism has divided just as many churches because either you believe one or the other, right? So, you know, it's just like, I'm gonna, I'm not even gonna to investigate whether Calvinism is true because I can deem it to be a divisive doctrine. All doctrine is divisive. And the, the fundamental doctrines have been as divisive as any over the course of church history because Satan doesn't like the fundamental doctrines of the faith. He doesn't like the sovereignty of God, doesn't like the gospel of grace, and, uh, and so forth. So again, it, it's a, uh, it, it's just another way that people divide, and I, I don't want to call myself by anything. That doesn't, that never really solves the problem anyway. So, we uh, kind of finished off there, referring to First Corinthians 11, and uh, the reason why God allows division in the church sometimes. And uh, we have, another reason we see it here is that when we allow, if we have division, when we allow sin to, to cloud our lives. And in First Corinthians 11, we know that there were those who were doing well, who would come to the love feast that they would have, kind of like we have on day on week we have communion we also eat together and the early church kind of did that and they people who had food were bringing it uh and, but they weren't sharing it with those who and, and there were some real needs in the church people who did not have and so you had people who were eating well people who were not and there was division in the church and it was an unloving spirit and it was not only causing division but Paul says uh, among other things people were sickly and dying. Because it is, you know, when you have the Lord's table and we're we're demonstrating everything that we have in communion with each other as followers of Christ, and then on the same day we are dividing and not sharing and not loving, you are a hypocrite. And the Lord takes that seriously, and people were sickly and even had died because of it. So chapter 11 reminds us that there won't always be perfect unity all the time. And even true believers can sometimes be the fault of it. But I think one lesson to learn here is that when division happens, a mature Christian's radar should go off, and we should examine the issues as to whether what is going on is important, who's causing it, and why, and uh, think it through. In other words, so as, as I've entitled the message, one of the uh, defenses against division is spiritual maturity. If we are spiritually mature, it will go a long way in helping us not become divisive. And so, with that in mind, a mature Christian, when something is said or done that would be causing division, we don't just join sides, we don't just act in the flesh or in emotionally, we look at what's going on here, why is it when this said and done, is this biblical? What's it leading to? We, we think things through biblically. That, and that causes us to stop. And as a pastor, I know I've had to learn that lesson throughout the years. And, you know, I think I'm better at it. I, I know there are times where I struggle with it. Is when something happens, my tendency is to want to just go and fix that thing. If someone does some, says something wrong or does something wrong, is it to, to, you know, go and take care of it. And sometimes you just gotta wait. And just be patient and let things run their course. And, and again, you, you learn that not everything can be taken care of right off the bat. So Paul isn't writing to cause division or to tell them to disband if they can't get along. 
but to identify the reason and to do something about it. And certainly to keep Christ in view at all times. Because that's ultimately the mature Christian understands that whatever's going on, if it's not leading us to Christ and glorifying Christ, then it's wrong. That we got to, we've lost our way. So Paul is telling us that, that as, as a rule, serious division is because someone has lost their way and so examined things carefully. So while there are core doctrines we must hold to as a group, yet our text is telling us that just because different leaders have differences doesn't mean you have to divide up accordingly, like it's imperative that you find someone who most closely sees things the way you do. There's a big danger out there of people, the keyboard warriors, don't go to church often, uh, probably in the many cases don't go to church at all, but they think they've been called by God to sit behind the keyboard and, and to uh, criticize every preacher and every movement out there. And I've seen them, they, they uh, have criticized unmercifully, uh, whether it be uh, uh, John MacArthur, John Piper, uh, uh, James White, these, these guys who are, are doing something for the Lord and have great ministry, but because they uh, have an error, perhaps, in one thing or another, well, they just, they, their whole ministry is written off. And it's kind of, a little bit, I think, what's going on here is with these people in, in Corinth were in danger of idolizing one person so that they were unable to benefit from anybody else. I would suggest within reason that as a pastor and a preacher, I need to challenge you just as I challenge. Not with heresy, not for emphasizing peripherals. Uh, I, I'm not, I, I want to challenge you when I preach, but I don't want to do it by being novel. I certainly don't want to do it by going into error. But to, uh, but to only listen I've not talked about trying to be novel, come up with new things, but few things have benefited me by getting together with pastors. And and in many cases, I have not, I do not always agree with, whether it be Presbyterians, whether it be differences with covenants. I've got together over the years with other pastors who spend hours talking, and you benefit by hearing their point of view. We don't, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can fellowship and learn from each other. Now, it takes discernment, but it challenges me to study harder, because these are men that I know the Lord blesses, I know they're faithful to the Lord, and yet, there's a disagreement. Well, well where did that disagreement come from? What does the Bible say about those things? So, we would always say that iron sharpens iron. We need that back and forth. Not arguing for argument's sake, but to learn from one another. And I say all that so that we don't need to be afraid to be challenged, to hear someone say something that's a little different. We protect ourselves by knowing God's word well, but not by cutting ourselves off from everybody everybody else. Because that kind of assumes you've got it all figured out. I, I, I know everything I need to know. I'm right about everything. I don't want to be challenged by anybody else. I might have to change my mind. Well, as a pastor, I am keenly aware of that because if I have to change what I 
what I've been preaching, then I know that, well, now you're sitting and thinking, well, he's wrong about that, you know. But that's part of it. We are always reforming. We are always saying, you know what, I feel like I have seen this in a better way at this point. Now, we're not talking about the fundamentals, the, the, the clear gospel doctrines. We're talking about differences. We can be different from one another. I like to teach sometimes by presenting things in a way that makes you think. In ways that might be different than the way you first heard something talk. To challenge us, uh, all of us, that sometimes we have to revisit and rethink things that we've heard before to make sure that we understand the doctrine. And sometimes that means we have to admit that, you know what, I haven't been thinking about this right. I, I, I've understood this wrongly. And those who aren't willing to consider this, I can guarantee you are going to be wrong about many things because that kind of mentality that I can't be corrected because I know everything will immediately cause you to uh, go into error. And I've always been amazed at how some have idolized one teacher, and a teacher perhaps in their youth, in their early adulthood, something that they learned from perhaps, you know, very profoundly. And they idolize that person to the point that someone comes along later and says, you know what, that, that I don't think that's right. It, it throws them for a loop because, oh, that guy couldn't have possibly been wrong. So they won't even listen. And I've seen that over the years. Just keep a person at a certain level. They're not able to progress in uh, the, the, the word of God because they will not admit that guy might have been wrong. And I know these are things we all struggle with, but we've got to be careful here. So Paul tells us here in verse 10, unity is based on having the same mind and judgment. It's not based on your feelings and sentiments. It's based on what the Word of God says. And as we grow with the Word of God, we will grow uh, to be like Christ to grow spiritually. And we've got to be careful about letting our feelings kind of rule the day. So as we grow in our understanding of the Word, which can't happen without learning and fine-tuning and even changing. I mean, think about it. We, we talk a lot about growing in the Lord, growing in the Word. But if that doesn't mean, but if you're unwilling to rethink things you have, stances you've had or, you know, doctrines as you've understood it, how can you, how, how can you progress? I mean, you can keep adding on your knowledge, but at some point it's also going to mean that, you know what? Uh, I've, got to, I've got to admit that I haven't been looking at this properly. And if we do that, it, it, it in turn affects our judgments and opinions about things. And so he wants us to think the same way about the re, about reality, about what the Bible actually teaches. And that's how we'll get along, because we all have a biblical worldview. We understand what the Bible says, what, who Christ is, what he's done for us, what we are as sinners, where we're headed, and so we're all living for the same reasons, even though we might have some nuances of differences, because everything is about Christ. But when we all have the same goal, there is unity. When life is about self, there will never be or our pet doctrine. The unifying principle of all scripture is serving and glorifying the Lord. And if we aren't doing this if we aren't living for this, something is fundamentally wrong with our worldview. So let's uh, let me just close 
kind of our, some thoughts from last week by reminding ourselves why all this is so important to Paul. And Romans 15.5 is another uh, area here that would help us. He says, May God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you of God. So you see here how uh, he says you live in agreement, in accord, so that there's a reason for that, so that with one voice you can glorify God. And so you do that by uh, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. Living Loving as the, as Christ has done for you in the gospel. That's why we say gospel motivation is imperative if we're going to do this. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, and comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. If you want God's blessing, if you want God's presence, if you want to grow and enjoy the Lord, you've got to live in peace with each other. It honors the Lord on earth and keeps the blessings flowing. And I don't know about you, but I want God's blessing. I don't. I know sometimes I don't live like I do when I it, it, you know, speak unlovingly or, or, or sin in some way, but at the end of the day, that's what I want. God's blessings on this church. What I don't need is my stubbornness and hatefulness and coldness to keep inviting the chastening hand of God on the church, right? Or on my life, or on my family. So these people seem to be more concerned with whose camp they are in than what the preacher is saying on Sunday morning. They pride themselves in their system and their doctrinal stances, but not in Christ. They had gone off on tangents, and uh, they were suffering for it. Of course, the Christian church was a mess for a number of reasons, but we're seeing here that their their arrogance and their pride was at the heart of it. And Paul jumped right into that. And so, again, as we kind of consider uh, going moving forward in verse 11, and uh, as I've entitled the message, spiritual maturity is the best defense against the vision. It might sound a little simplistic. I understand that because I'm always careful about, you know, the key to spiritual success, you know, and all this kind of stuff, because, you know, that can get us into trouble. But it might sound a little simplistic, but at the end of the day, growing in the Lord and becoming Christ-like and spiritually minded is the, is, is the key, in one sense, to the Christian life. It's what it's all about, right? Now, it might be good. Let me just define spiritual maturity so that we understand what I'm talking about here, first of all. Spiritual maturity is not how much of the Bible you know or can quote, although that certainly is helpful, right? It's not how long you have been saved or what kind of gifts and position you might have in the church. Spiritual maturity is to be so aware of who you are in Christ that it profoundly affects the way you see God, yourself, and others. I'm not sure if that's my quote, or I got it. I think it's funny. Either way, you can quote me on that. 
It is to be so aware of who you are in Christ that it profoundly affects the way you see God, yourself, and others. We'll try to build on that as we go along here today. Spiritual, spirituality produces humility and unity and in that order. In other words, you'll never have unity if we think too highly of ourselves. But when, as long as I live in the attitude, I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. I am here to serve the Lord, and that only. And sometimes that means I'm going to be washing the feet of others. I'm going to be serving others. A minister serves, right? We all serve one another. Then we're going to have unity. But if we go around expecting to be served, we will not never have unity. And so Paul starts off by laying out some simple reminders as he builds up to the end of the chapter. And while divisions and unity will be addressed throughout the book, it seems that the first four chapters deal specifically with it, and he'll name these groups uh, later on in chapter 3 as well. But it shouldn't be hard for us to see some of this today, where the media has made it easy to know and listen to big personalities outside of our own church. It was even in Corinth they were doing it, although it wasn't through the internet, obviously. But you had Apollos, who was the pastor, Paul, who was the great evangelist, who had started the church, Peter, who was the disciple of the Lord. These personalities that were being used against each other. And I have no problem with listening to personalities outside the church, right? I've just recommended to you a sermon of someone outside of the I literally, as a rule, spend hours every week listening to people that I'm learning from, right? And I recommend that you, when you can, do that, and certainly to do it through books. So if this is not against that, it is not to use those things to be in conflict with me and the church. The problem comes when we assume since that particular person is successful, that he is to be taken over everyone else, including the look your elders. And so they become little clones to people who think like this. And they keep pushing everyone, including their own pastor, to follow that man's teaching or his technique. And if you don't, then the Lord can't bless this church and I'm going to leave. They expect their pastor to be a clone of their favorite preacher. And again, I've seen this many times. <clears throat> but you know, I can find successful men from all kinds of parents. And so that's, you, know, that, you gotta be very careful. You know, there's, there's a lot of great preachers out there who baptize babies. And I can learn from them. But I also know that, well, there's a limit to what I can understand. So, you can learn, but you also have to be able to discern and keep your distance. On the other side of this, we have seen in the Christ follower, those who follow Christ, and obviously we're doing that in a prideful way too, is the idea that you don't need elders or the church at all. I follow Christ, so I don't need these other guys. If you don't like something, you can just go off and let the Lord teach you directly. Or if the church varies with me, at all, then God is okay with me just, you know, leaving and maybe I start my own little home church. And that happens all the time too, because 
And, and I've known so many men who are unwilling to submit to a body of believers. They must be the teachers. They must be the ones. You've got to do it my way or the highway. And there's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with a home church. It's just a church that hasn't got a building. That's really all it is. But a home church without elders, deacons, a membership, accountability, is not a church. It's a Bible study. It's a potentially dangerous Bible study because that's exactly what a lot of people want and nothing more. They want to go meet together and discuss the Bible. They do not want somebody standing up saying, Thus says the Lord, and we have come together as a church and we've coveted to live this way, and if you don't, we will excommunicate you. We will reprove you. We will uh, not let you just do whatever you want to do. And there's so many people who don't want that. They want to be in charge of their own life. And that's a Bible study, but it's not a church. It's a dangerous Bible study. And again, I am a part of two Bible studies right now. I'm not against Bible if, if there's someone there who is leading it, who's doctrinally sound, and keeping it where it needs to be going, then it's a great benefit. When it's something where everybody's voicing their opinions about what the Bible says, it's nothing but a danger. The most dangerous thing in a Bible study is someone saying, this is what this verse means to me. And I know I'm maybe going a little off topic here. But I don't stand up here and tell you what this verse means to me. I, I study... I, in its context, I study other men, I study things, I'm telling you what I believe God's word says, I'm not giving my opinion about what it says. It's a big difference. So, they can be anti-authority, suspicious over everything, unwillingness to learn from others. And so, it can be either this or the first pair, where you're always totally dependent upon one person and unable to discern for yourself. So you can go either way, but both of those cause division. Whether I'm totally dependent on what this man says or I don't care what anyone says except for what I say. Neither are good. So what Paul is doing here is describing the nature and reason for their disunity. The first thing he says really in verses 11 and 12 is that they've got a pride issue. You've got pride in your favorite, which is Ultimately, pride in yourself. The cure for pride and vision, of course, is the Word of God. And more specifically, the things that it tells us that should not be pride out of us. Which is where Paul is going to get to in our last messages in this chapter. is going to be all about the fact that God chose the weak and the ignoble uh, to glorify himself. So, you, you have no reason to think highly of yourself. So the one, the more it, uh, the word of God holds on to us, the more humble and useful to the Lord we will be. And so he uh, says several things here. The first question he asks is, is Christ divided? Just on the surface, a church divided is a contradiction of our profession. It's supposed to be one body, Christ our head, one body working in unison to do whatever the head wants us to do, right? And if we're divided, can't get along, then 
it's, we're, we're, uh, we're being hypocritical. Uh, it's a contradiction of our profession. True religion shouldn't be a way for us to divide. It should be something that is causing us to uh, be doing the same thing, living lives unto the Lord. And so this truth means that we need to stop thinking of ourselves as separate from the church, because that at the same time, you're, you're thinking you're if you think that you're separate from the church, you don't see yourself as one with the church, you're saying, I don't see myself as one with Christ because the church is the body of Christ. When he saved us, he united us to himself spiritually and he unites us to his local body physically. It doesn't mean you don't have a personality, a family. You know, when we become a Christian, we don't just lose our identity in that sense. But as we, we talked about at the beginning of this study, we are Christians first. Our identity is in Christ. It's not about whether I'm male or female, husband, wife, farmer, banker, a Calvinist, a millennialist, Baptist. Those things are part of our identity, but they're subservient to how we are in Christ. Notice in uh, Romans chapter 12, look at that over for a second, in uh, let's read verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, again, because it's that pride that's always at the heart of division, but to think with sober judgment, to think with spiritual maturity, think things through according to the word of God, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generality, generosity, the one who leads in zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to be gifted the same. And that's hard for me as a pastor. That's something I had to learn is that I don't have to do everything. First of all, I don't, because I'm not gifted to do everything. I can't do everything. And if I try to do everything, it won't be as good. There will be a lot of weak areas. But if we all say, you know what, that's something I can do and I can do well, now our church has become stronger because of it. Our differences are gifts from God to make us well-rounded, not to make us proud so other people can see our gifts. So if a church had all singers but no teachers or no encouragers, nothing much would get done, right? So it doesn't mean differences are wrong and don't exist, but we need to be more aware of Christ than putting so much emphasis on the other things so that they end up taking the place of our love for the Lord, first and foremost, working together to get something done. You cannot focus on the fact that somebody doesn't do things the way you, you like them to be done. Somebody says something that you're not quite on board with. You've got to remember why we're here. You know, most Baptist churches started because they broke away from another Baptist church 
and they've continually split over this through the years often. Uh, so instead of having one large church in the area, you have a whole lot of little Baptists. You know, Dr. Baptist the only one. They're kind of known for, for that. And so many times the reason they divide it are over silly things, stupid things, things that don't matter. And I didn't get my way. And literally, I didn't get the colored carpet I wanted. I didn't get the colored shoes that I wanted. So I, we're going to go over here, we're going to do our own thing. And that selfishness, it, it's taking our eyes off of Christ and off serving Him and uh, you're going to serve me. And, and that's what we have to be so careful about. That shows spiritual immaturity. And, and the point of this message is that I force myself, I get myself into a habit of thinking through the decisions that are being made and not just fly off the handle. And so Paul says, is Christ divided? And the second thing he says, that if we are part of Christ, we should be united with each other. We shouldn't be divided. Chapter 3, he, he's going to still, uh, he's a, a still addressing this, so turn over there for a second. Notice what he says here. Verse 15 3. Verses 21 through 23. He says, Let no one boast in men, which is what they've been doing, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, present or future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. In other words, don't boast in men, because at the end of the day, Christ is the one who died for you, and everything that, every promise that God has promised you is attained in Christ. Everything is yours. Not only is eternal life yours, but the new heavens and the new earth is yours. Victory over sin is yours. Peace and joy and fulfillment, it's all yours in Christ. Why do you put these men ahead of that? have Christ and have everything. So why limit yourself to following one man or get all focused on one doctrine? And then notice here what he, how, what he says in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let the wisdom of the world, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craft and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. And I think what's going on here, someone has come along, and they have found the secret to everything. I have figured it out. I figured out what the Bible really means. I figured out the key to spiritual maturity, uh, you know, of understanding the Bible. And uh, Paul says, be careful here. Because this is all about Christ. Anyone who comes along and whatever they're teaching you doesn't exalt Christ. It doesn't help you love Christ more and conform you to Christ. They have gotten off into some either error or some tangent. Be careful about that. Keep yourself in the gospel. Give yourself to Christ. Serve him well. That's the key. Not a technique. You know, some people have techniques. They, they, they've gotten off on tangent. So it's it's all about keeping the law, perhaps. Or, uh, you know, the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, they're really healthy. So, that's what we need to do. We need to start eating like they did in the Old Testament. And I've known people okay, where, you know, they come to church function. Well, what's in it? I have to eat this. And I have to eat that. You know, I can't eat this and that. 
And it's because they've gotten all focused on certain kind of dietary laws. It is kind of a burden sometimes. Or, you know, let's get rid of all the instruments in the church. Let's stop. we got to speak in tongues. We get off on these tangents. And they take away from the fact that we're sinners saved by grace. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Let's just get that right. Anyone who thinks they found the secret that no one else has seen for 2,000 years is a fool. Thirdly, Paul says, was, was I crucified for you? So tactfully, he kind of attacks those who are glorified in him first. Because I didn't die for you. I need Jesus just like you do. One reason it should be all about Christ's glory is because he's the only one who's done anything for us. And then he real says, Paul says, I didn't die for you. Why are you glorying me? This is about Jesus Christ. So he kind of removes himself from the ground of boasting. And any leader worth his salt would be worried if people were more loyal to him rather than Christ. Because that's how cults are. I am the only purpose and benefit in my ministry is as I lead you to Jesus. It helps help you see how the Bible teaches of him. If you're coming to this church, and I know this isn't the case, if, if you're coming to this church because of me, you've missed the point. But you say, well, yeah, 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 I don't want to do that. But there are a lot of uh, churches where the guy is such a gifted speaker, even might be you know, maybe it's difficult or not. But people go because of the personality, because they enjoy listening to him, because, you know, of, of, of the way he speaks. Which I think there's something going on here with uh, the Corinthians. And, it, and I've known, I've seen it, I've, I've been in churches where there's a particularly gifted speaker, and a Sunday he's not there, uh, the attendance is down half. Because they're there to hear him, not to hear about Jesus. And there's a problem, and that's why you're there. There's something wrong with that, right? But Paul says, Christ loves you more than I do anyway. He deserves your love. And then, fourthly, in verses 13c through 17, he talks about baptism. And apparently, who baptized them was supposed to mean something. It, it, it may be gotten out of hand. They were using that as a way to divide. Well, who baptized you? Because if if this person baptized you, it's more important. You know, you could glory in that. You know, something was going on there. And he says in uh, Acts 18.8, he mentions Christmas here, because he kind of kind of gets off a little bit on a tangent where he says, uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, the answer is no. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. Because baptism is a statement, that I've been joined to Christ, not to this group or that man, right? Then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius. Well, in Acts, we actually learn about that, where Christmas, who was ruled in the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, by the way. Uh, there's never any indication that anyone was baptized if they hadn't first believed. Not, not babies were baptized. And many of the Corinthians carrying Paul believed and were baptized. So we see here a kind of a reference to that. But nobody has any reason to glory in anything uh, in who baptized them. Because we're all the same in Christ. 
and, and what we see here is that baptism is not in any way put on the same level as preaching the gospel, right? Because there are those who believe that you are saved by faith and baptism. That you've got to have both. But if that's the case, Paul is kind of saying, well, you know, all I came to do is to preach to you. Who baptized you is not important. How can you say that if if baptism saves, the baptism, uh, you know, in some way justifies you or cleanses you or has some effect upon you, it is important to baptize you. It would be very important if Paul baptized people. But just by the way Paul words this, lets us know that baptism is something that follows salvation. They use it to take their focus off the gospel. Paul was the first on the scene as an apostle, their spiritual father. But that didn't mean that he was more important than Christ or even the other leaders because they're all working for the same master. And so it's evident that Paul viewed his preaching of the gospel as having a much higher priority than baptizing new converts. And again, this is something that you have to stop and just think about what he's saying here. It can hardly be overlooked that Paul saw salvation as something which occurs independently of baptism. Baptism is important because it's the believer's public identification with Jesus. But baptism is not viewed as the means of one's salvation. Rather, it is the outward manifestation of salvation. And so Paul here rejects the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Otherwise, because if you baptize a baby and there was some grace infused to that baby, it would be very important. That baptism would be very important, right? And I think um, he'd have a much higher, pro- give it a much higher priority than he does. People are saved by believing the gospel, that it was Paul's priority to preach it, because baptism took second place in preaching in Paul's ministry. And just to verify that, look at chapter two, verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus. Christ and him crucified. He doesn't say, I came there and I only preached Christ and baptized. No. Because what, what saves is the gospel. The gospel is the power of salvation, not the gospel of baptism. Right? It's, it's, it's a no-brainer, but some have certainly gone astray. Later he's going to say, as we get down to the latter part of the chapter, it's through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. Not to the foolishness of preaching and water baptism. He doesn't get baptism ahead, right? Right? So, the inference of what Paul says here sh- should correct a lot of people's doctrine when it comes to baptism, but we know that it's not how it always works. Alright, I gotta, I gotta close here. Um, let me just say a couple more things here. The proper attitude of any servant of God, I think, is seen in verse 17 of our text in chapter 1, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize with the preaching gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the Christ be emptied of his power. One of the problems here with Apollos was a gifted speaker. And there were those who were enamored with Apollos because unlike Paul, who was not a gifted Second Corinthians, that becomes a big thing where they were questioning Paul's apostleship. One of the things they would say is he cannot speak publicly. He, he's not interested. 
He can't possibly be speaking through. Apollos was a gifted speaker. And uh, you see this over in Acts 26. Oh, uh, well, uh, I'll get ahead of myself. Um, the proper attitude of any servant of God is seen, as I said, in verse 17. It's not about who did what, but the Lord's work being done. And you need to pray for Jeff and I in that regard. This is what, what this church is about is the Lord Jesus Christ in preaching the gospel, the word of God. Paul knew that that was the only thing that mattered from the start. And so in Acts 26, 6, we're going to read two verses out of, two sections out of Acts. Paul says, but rise to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, this is the Lord speaking to Paul, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this was Paul's priority to preach the gospel and see people turn from darkness to light. And division means our priorities are not Paul's, so something's wrong. And so the last, the last point I'll make today is that he then attacks Apollos' party. As I said, he was a gifted speaker. He was probably the, the pastor of the church. And it says in Acts 18.24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Um, in fact, he's the one who knew, he had been baptized under John's ministry. He didn't even know about Christian baptism. So he was, had to be, that had to be explained to him that he's baptized as a follower of Christ. But he goes later on in the chapter, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So you can see why there were people who were enamored with Apollos because this man, when he got up, he was spellbinding. And so I follow Paul. Or uh, I follow Paul. So forth. He was a gifted speaker. And so some took that to mean that he was more important or I would take him more seriously than I will somebody else. Paul was not a good speaker. So he, for some, lost credibility. And so... I think one of the applications here is can you look past the slickness or the gifts that are the legitimate gifts and hear what is being said? Are, are you there to hear from Christ or are you there to be, uh, you know, just uh, enthralled with the gift of somebody who's a speaker? Good preaching is about dying, not shining. So if you elevate or listen to one above another because of the gift you are missing the point. Are the ones you listen to dead to themselves than alive to Christ? If so, they will be presenting Christ to you. That's what you will see. When you get done, and, and it, it might be an amazing gift. They, they have done a great job. The communication is great. 
But what you remember is not their delivery, but what they said. It needs to be impressed with gifts. That's not necessarily wrong. But we have to be led to Jesus Christ. And if we get sidetracked, we become divisive. We become followers of men. Forget what we're doing. And division follows. Well, we had some other things to say, but we'll get that one real quick. Anyway, are there any questions?